0: Having now sung about God's forgiveness, mercy, and compassion, let's read about how he demonstrates this to us. Let's read together from Hebrews 10, the verses 1 to 25, which you can find on page 1380 of your Pew Bible. Hebrews 10, the verses 1 to 25. The author of the letter to the Hebrews has been speaking about how Christ is a better high priest when who enters the most holy place, who has finished his work as, with the sacrifice of himself. Now he speaks in connection with the law. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, Can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, in connection with this passage, we will be looking at the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, what we teach about the Lord's Supper. And today we'll be doing that, looking at the words of Lord's Day 30 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 545 of your book of praise, Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on that cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. For then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in today's culture, we're a very careful group of people when it comes to language. The greatest sin, it almost seems, in the secular world is to be offensive. Universities establish safe spaces where young people can go in order not to hear language that might hurt them. Speakers are banned from campuses where their words may make people feel unsafe. Institutions of higher learning, tongue-in-cheek or not, issue lists of words that must be used and words that may not be used. And human rights tribunals stand at the ready to challenge anyone whose speech is not acceptable. Tolerance rules the day. And if you won't be tolerant, you'll be silenced. Now, as they say, where it rains in the world, it drips in the church. Today, we flinch at the thought of challenging those who use the name of the Lord in vain. We shrink back at the thought of encouraging our friends and neighbors to challenge their presuppositions and to consider their eternal destinies and above all we must not suggest that someone's ideas are condemnable especially if they hold them dear so when the heidelberg catechism calls the roman catholic view of the mass a curse to idolatry we shudder how can we use such language isn't that unchristian isn't that hateful Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you the word of God under the following theme. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, at this point, some of you might be wondering, isn't it time that we've moved past this? Why are we still going over the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper? Wasn't the Reformation a long time ago? Haven't we moved beyond this? The stern language that the catechism uses seems to have no real application for today. Now, there are three reasons why it is important to cover this. First, and the most obvious, is that some of you, young people here, go to Catholic schools. And as such, you've probably been exposed to this at one point or another. So, for you, it's a very real question why do we do Lord's Supper the way we do, as opposed to the Roman Catholic Church? Second, for those who aren't directly exposed to the Roman Catholic Church's teachings, or their educators, you'll run into those who are, whether it be your children, your friends, your neighbors, or your coworkers, And the last thing you want is to be exposed to the question, what's the difference between what you teach and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches? And not really know what to answer. You may even end up in a camp of those who argue that there's no real difference without really realizing the gravity of that kind of a statement. That you're talking about God the Son, that we ought not to be flippant with regards to who he is and where he is. For, as we read in Hebrews 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire who desires our worship to be focused on him as he is and where he is. Third, the position of the Roman Catholic Church itself has not changed. In a council named Vatican II, which ran from 1962 to 1965, and according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church reaffirmed their teachings of the Council of the Trent on the Mass. This was a church council that anathemized those who held the Protestant position of the Lord's Supper. Now, in case you're wondering what the word anathema means, you can find it in Galatians 1 verse 8. There it's translated as accursed by some and eternally condemned by others. Your average Roman Catholic might not realize this, but this is the official position of the Church of Rome. So having established that their position hasn't changed, that they've reaffirmed it, what exactly is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Lord's Supper? Well, we read in the Heidelberg Catechism That the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and is there to be worshipped. But that's the Protestant view of what Roman Catholics believe, right? Surely it's a misconception of their true position. After all, they have a vested interest in proving the Roman Catholic Church wrong. So maybe this is a straw man that's been set up. Well, let's take a moment then to see what exactly the Council of Trent does teach about this. We read in the 22nd session of the Council of Trent in Canon 1, If anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God, or that to be offered is nothing else than that Christ is given to us to eat, let him be anathema. In Canon 3, we read, If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only one of praise and thanksgiving, or that it is a mere commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory one, meaning the offering of the body and blood at that moment on the altar of the priest has the opportunity to be a literal sacrifice to pay for sin. If you don't hold to that, let him be anathema. By this, we can see that for the first point that the, Roman Catholic, that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us, they are not wrong in their summary of the Roman Catholic position. But what about the second point? Well, let's go back to the documents of the Church of Rome. In the 13th session, in chapter 1, we read, first of all, The Holy Council teaches and openly and plainly professes that after the consecration of bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is really, truly, and substantially contained in the august sacrament of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of these things, these sensible things, so things which you can sense, taste, touch, see. When the altar boy rings the bell and the priest consecrates the bread and wine, We see here that they say Jesus Christ is really, truly in the bread and wine. Its substance changes and becomes his body and blood. Because it is the true Christ in their eyes that's there before him, in the bread and wine, because it's the true Christ in their eyes, they naturally conclude from this in chapter 5, there is therefore no room for doubt. That all the faithful of Christ may, in accordance with a custom always received in the Catholic Church, give to this most holy sacrament, in veneration, the worship of Latria. Latria is the word for supreme worship allowed to God alone. The worship of Latria, which is due to the true God. When the bread and wine is lifted, the Roman Catholic Church calls its people to worship that bread and wine with the worship that is due to God alone. Not to worship God through it, as some might say or assume, but to actually worship it, as they said, to give to this most holy sacrament in veneration the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God. This also leads them to say in Canon 1 of this chapter if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are tr- contained truly and really and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is in it only as a sign, a figure, or force, let him be anathema. Let him be eternally condemned. In the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church, if you partake in the Lord's Supper in the way that we celebrate it here in Owen Sound Canadian Reformed Church, you will be eternally condemned. That's a pretty serious charge. This is an issue on which the Church of Rome has not budged, nor will it budge. So any hope that Protestants hold out in many mainline churches of bringing the Church of Rome and Protestant churches together is a vain hope. If your friends in the Church of Rome hold to these views, it's in their interest to actively seek you out and try to persuade you because in their eyes, you'll be eternally condemned if you don't. And if they don't hold to these views, then their own church condemns them. So, All that being said, what do we then believe about the bread and wine? Why do we not only say that we are not condemned, but that worshiping bread and wine as God is an accursed idolatry? The Catechism lays that out simply and clearly in two points, points which stand in direct opposition to those of the Church of Rome. First, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. He accomplished it on the cross. That sacrifice means it's done. It's finished. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is where he wants to be worshipped. So first, Christ's one sacrifice on the cross, offered once and for all, is enough. And second, we worship Christ as he is, in heaven, when we take part in the Lord's Supper. What are the consequences of these two statements? If they are true, then the Roman Catholic Church is busying itself with giving bread and wine, the honor that is due to God and to God alone and suggesting that Christ's crucifixion was not enough. And there is little that God hates more than when his people give something else divine worship than the worship that's due to God alone. And when they take away from his glory. The consequences of taking the position that we confess to take is extremely serious. Now, is this position right? It might be offensive, an offensive thought to some of you, disposition. It might not be phrased strongly enough for others of you. But at the end of the day, it's not the question in the Heidelberg Catechism that matters. But the question that matters is, is this what the Bible says? Is this what the Bible says? Are we holding ourselves to the ultimate standard which should govern our whole lives? Is this the way that God has told us that he wants to be worshipped? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how we feel. It doesn't matter what position you want to take. What matters is God, God's glory, God alone. What matters is his glory and his truth. Now, in order to see what is meant by his truth, let's take some time to dive into scripture in connection with these two statements. First, was Christ's one sacrifice enough? Was it offered once for all as he said it was? Now the first hang-up of the Church of Rome, the first hang-up that they have is actually with regards to a passage that's very familiar to any who have taken part in the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verse 26. There we read, and as they're eating, Jesus took bread blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body. Shortly after this, we read about Christ saying the same thing about the cup of blessing. This is my blood. Now, what's the hang-up that they have there? What's the word that they are struggling with there? For all of the centuries that we've been discussing this issue, what is the issue? The issue is that little word, is. Christ said it is his body and his blood. And because he said it is, it became so, is their argument. When he held up the bread and wine in front of him and said the words of blessing, the substance changed and it became his body and blood. Now, aside from the obvious theological issues with regards to Christ suddenly creating more of himself and how that all works, let's examine the words there for a moment. At the very least, people who are on both sides of the issue can say that the word is can mean represents, right? If you point to your mom and dad and say, this is my mom and dad, or if you hold up a picture of your mom and dad and say, this is my mom and dad, in neither case would you be lying. Same with when Jesus Christ says, I am the vine. He is not saying that he is leafy. He's saying that this is a word picture which describes him, who he is. So when we, when we look at this, when he says, this is my body, we don't say it's impossible that he's not literally referring to his body. In fact, we can say from the other word pictures he uses in his parables and his preaching that it's quite likely that he's not literally referring to his body actual flesh and blood, that he's not literally holding up his own flesh and blood in front of the disciples. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at the logical consequences of saying it is literally his body for a moment. If it is literally his body and blood being sacrificed on the altar as the mass suggests, then Christ's one sacrifice was not enough. His one sacrifice, when he was hanging up there on the cross, was not enough. He is instead being offered up, sacrificed on altar upon altar upon altar around the world. And then the rest of the Bible should attest to that if that's the case, shouldn't it? But it doesn't. Instead we see time and time again that Christ was sacrificed once and for all and that was enough. Let's take a moment to look at some of these passages in connection with that. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 verse 24. Let's start with that. You can find that on page 1378. Hebrews 7 verse 24. And following sets the stage. But he, being Jesus, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then comes the part that relates directly to our discussion. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all, when he offered up himself, saying, "He's not like those other priests, had to offer up sacrifices again and again, first for themselves for their own sins in order to purify themselves, and then for the people." No, it was done when he offered up his sacrifices once and for all. <laughs> Hebrews nine verse twelve, not with the blood of bulls and go- of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Once for all. Hebrews 9, verse 24 to 26. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But let's not stop there. Let's read again our passage in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10 to 18, that we read before. By that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands This is again talking about Old Testament worship. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put, their, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, let us weep for those who do not think that Christ's one sacrifice was enough. Let us weep for those who do not hold to the words of John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Because for them it is not finished. It is never finished. Even after death, they need to have more masses done for the dead in order to pay for sins which were not atoned for in life. Even after death, they suffer the consequences of their sin. What bondage it is to live in a world where Christ's crucifixion is not enough, is never enough. A world where your sins are never quite completely washed away. A world in which you come to the cross at the foot of Golgotha Hill and the burden of your sin isn't cut off. It simply eased a little bit in order to come back again tomorrow. Never again in such a world will you be able to truly escape sin. Never will you truly be able to say, my sinful nature is put to death once and for all in the death of Christ. No, you are constantly driven back to dependence on a priest, a sinful man, a man of this world who brings Christ down to earth at his beck and call so that he can slaughter the Lamb of God once again on the altar where it is never finished for you. But praise God that we are not bound to that. We're not bound to the words and traditions of earthly men. We have a father in heaven who in his infinite love agreed with his son on earth when his last breath when with his last breath he uttered the words, it is finished. We have his words, the personal assurance of the Spirit, of God the Holy Spirit, in the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith alone in Christ's sacrifice, which happened once and for all, is what opens the way to heaven for all who believe. There is no rule upon rule, sacrifice upon sacrifice that needs to be done. It was accomplished once and for all. And as we approach the throne of grace and faith, we don't need to shrink in fear before our Heavenly Father ever again. Instead, we can say with the words we read, the words of the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to this confession without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we can see that both points our Catechism brings forward are scriptural and true. Christ was on earth, In his time here, in the body, his sacrifice was accomplished once and for all. And in him, we have forgiveness once and for all. He ascended into heaven and ought to be worshiped there. Therefore, let us spur one another on to glorify him in our worship, in our words, in our lives, as he lives and reigns in heaven, our one true king. So, in the light of all that, in the light of this precious reality which is ours today, that we can hold fast to, how do we respond to those who hold to the doctrine of the Mass? We respond with love for our neighbor. We don't Describe them as one Roman Catholic blogger stated as nasty Catholics who we need to run from, dislike, or shun. That ought not to be the way that we deal with them. Nor do we come down on them like a ton of bricks. But we cannot stand silently by when the occasion to address this rises. When someone is caught in a sin, we need to address them about it. And we do so gently and lovingly, not because we believe we have the moral high ground, but because we are concerned for the glory of our God. We are genuinely concerned for their spiritual well-being, and we deeply care about them, and we love them. We love them, and we want to direct them to the true worship of God in heaven our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, let us respond to them in this way, pouring out our love, a love that was granted to us through the one sacrifice on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, a love which was affirmed to us through the words, it is finished. Amen.